1: Michael Franzese was not just a soldier, but a capo in the notorious Colombo crime family. He spent the better part of a decade in federal prison on charges including tax fraud, racketeering, and parole violations. I grew up in New York where there are five organized crime families. My dad was an underboss in the Colombo crime family back in the 1960s. I went to see my dad in Leavenworth, and uh, I said, Dad, listen, I don't want to go to school anymore. During the course of that visit, he said to me, listen, if your mind is made up and you don't want to go to school, then uh, if you're going to be on the street, I want you to be on the street in the right way. And that's how it started for me. And I'll be honest, we had a great service this morning, and you know, I speak all over the country, I've been everywhere, and every time I come back to this area, I have a little bit of an anxiety, you know, I don't know why, but uh, uh, especially when he says there's a lot of Italians in the audience now, just take it easy now, just calm down, but... Anyway, it really is great to be here. It's very special to me. I was born in Brooklyn, brought, brought up in, uh, and raised in Brooklyn and Long Island, but spent some time here in New Jersey. And, um, you know, it's always great to be back. And it's just a special feeling for me. So I thank you for having me. And I'll tell you what, and I really mean this. You know, a lot of people say to me, you know, Mike, I don't have to go to church. Church is in my house. Well, I got to tell you, church is not in your house, church is in church. And it really is a place that you come to worship. And this place is very, very special. The little that I've seen, I'm really impressed. And for those of you that are members here, uh, you're in a really good place. For those of you who are not, I encourage you to come back because this is a one-shot deal for me. But what they've got going on here is really amazing and and do the research. It really is. Anyway, I'm going to tell you a little story. And hopefully at the end of it, you'll see where God interceded in my life. Uh, My dad was the underboss of the Colombo family, one of the five New York uh, New Jersey, La Cosa Nostra, mafia families. And uh, in that life, underboss is a very powerful position. In that life, you have a boss, an underboss, a caporegime, regime, or captain, and a soldier. Many of you have seen The Godfather. There is a position called consigliere. Robert Duvall played that role brilliantly, I might add, but in The Godfather, was fictional because in order to be a made sworn member of that life, your father must be Italian. Mom can be of another descent, but your father must be Italian. And my dad, in terms of Law enforcement investigation, media attention, very, very high profile, always under investigation, always a major target of law enforcement. And I'll be honest with you, I grew up a lot differently than most of you in this room. I grew up hating the police. I hated them. Hated law enforcement, hated the government. And it wasn't because my dad taught me that way. He didn't teach me that way. He was smart. He taught me to respect the law. But it was really because of what I witnessed as a kid growing up. Law enforcement tactics and techniques against organized crime were different back then than they are today. Today, everything is very covert, a lot of high-tech surveillance equipment, a lot of undercover informants. A guy can be under investigation and not really know about it until it's too late. Back in my day when they were under investigation, law enforcement wanted them to know about it. And my dad, for a period of about 10 years, when I was a kid growing up, was under investigation from seven or eight different agencies. FBI, IRS, Queens Detectives, Brooklyn DA's office, all the locals. And every one of these agencies had a car parked around my house. 24 hours a day, seven days a week. They had us cornered on all sides. I was one of seven kids. Whenever we as a family would go anywhere, we had a parade of law enforcement vehicles following us. Everybody knew when we were coming into town. And I witnessed some things that were kind of unpleasant. You know, every once in a while, that's a rough detail. The agents get out of, out of hand. One night, I remember, one day rather, I was playing ball on the street, and I was about 10 years old. A kid throws a ball it goes over my head. It rolls down the street to where one of the agent's cars were parked. And just as I approach, he gets out of the car, a big burly guy, right? And he puts his foot on the ball, and I get close to him. He moves his, his jacket aside. He had a gun there. He said, this is for your old man. Kind of scary when you're a kid, right? And I tell you, I love my dad. He was my hero in life. I idolized him. Great father, great husband to my mother. And uh, he didn't want this life for me originally. He wanted me to go to school and be a doctor. He said, Stun, stay off the street, get an education. That's where it's at. And I was on that road. And I'll tell you, uh, when I was a kid in school, I played all three sports. I was kind of a jock. My dad would never miss a game. No matter what he was doing, my business, legit business, I'm playing ball, he'd show up. And I'll never forget, it happened so many times, I'm playing baseball, right? I'm up to bat. I look out of the corner of my eye, here comes dad. Big black Cadillac or a black Lincoln. For those of you my age, remember those 1960 Cadillacs? Their fin was half the size of this room. You couldn't miss him, right? So he comes up, he pulls right up to the field. He never went into the parking lot. Right up to the field. <laughs> He gets out of the car, always dressed sharp in a suit. Dad never dressed any other way back then. Always had five or six guys with him. My dad never traveled alone. They'd get out of the car, start walking onto the field and into the stands. The umpire would take one look at that crew, never call strike three on me when he saw dad. <laughs> I used to say, hey, pop, you're very good for my batting average. I play football. Nobody would tackle me when he was in the stands. It's good to have a dad in a mob when you play sports, right? And uh, he was great. And uh, he got in some real trouble back in the 60s, indicted several times, some serious cases in the state, once for homicide, grand larceny, a whole bunch of things, went to trial, and, uh, and he beat all those cases, found not guilty. But then in 1966, he was indicted in federal court for masterminding a nationwide string of bank robberies. He and four other gentlemen, after a lengthy trial, he was convicted and sentenced to 50, 50 years in prison. In 1967, um, he was sentenced, and in 1970, after losing all his appeals, he was shipped off to Leavenworth Penitentiary in Kansas to do his time. Now, as a pre-med student, Hofstra University, when Dad went away, I was devastated. Figured he was 50 when he went in. Add 50 on top of that, my Dad would never come out of prison alive. Just as an aside, today, my Dad, Sonny Francis, um, is 95 years old. He's done 34 years in prison since 1970, in and out five times, each time on a parole violation, and each time for associating with another felon or somebody alleged to be an organized crime. You can't do that when you're on federal parole. When I was on parole, I had 526 people on my separation list. i actually I'll give you a list. Some of them I never heard of. Some of them were dead. They don't even let you go to a cemetery and meet with anybody. <laughs> Feds are tough, let me tell you. And my dad kept coming out, he thought he was being cute, you know, he'd meet with somebody covertly, they're surveilling him or the other guy, violated him back to prison five times. I went to see him three years ago in Milan, Michigan, he was independent, I said, Dad, come on, man, you're 92 years old, you gotta stop meeting people. He said, son, what do you want me to do? I don't know anybody that's not a felon. He said, even you're a felon. I said, I know that, Dad, you don't have to remind me. I said, but old school, very cantankerous, took me a year to get off his separation list, I was number one on there. But uh, I'll tell you the sad thing about my dad. My dad is the oldest living maid guy in America. He's been in that life over 65 years. He's got some stories to tell. But uh, very old school, very cantankerous, you know. And uh, sad thing, he gets out on his last violation, and within a year, he's indicted again on another racketeering case, Eastern District of New York. He gets convicted, and they sentenced him to another eight years in prison. And my dad's got to live to, uh, his release date is 2017. He's got to live to 100 to be out of prison on this one. And, you know, he's in pretty good shape for 95, but he's 95, so I don't know. But I tell you, you know, one of the weakest part of my ministry was trying to minister to Dad. Every time I talked to him, I know about Jesus. I want to talk mob stuff, right, like I never left. And so I've been praying for him. praying. You know how it is with family. It's hard, man. They look at you like you got three heads, you know. What are you talking about, you know? So I'm trying, trying. He wants to talk mob things. And I've had everybody praying for him for the last 15 years. Pray for Sonny. Pray for Sonny. And I believe in the power of prayer. I said, you know, God will answer it. Might be a deathbed experience, but he's gonna come around, right? And I've had, God bless the women. You women are special. Us guys, we don't I'll tell you what, I'm the worst prayer guy there is. Every time I pray, other things come into my head. I can't focus, it's just the way my mind works. So my prayer is just talking to God. Just talk to him like normal. I'm driving in a car. Thank God they got, you know, cell phones with, with microphones now. they think you're crazy otherwise, but that's how I pray. But women seem to be really focused on prayer, and they come to me, Mike, I've been praying for my knucklehead husband for 20 years. He don't want to listen. I can't get him into the church. My father, the same deal. Let me buy you a book. He likes the mob stuff. Maybe that'll bring him along. Don't ever give up on prayer, people. Remember, one of the greatest stories in the Bible was the thief on the cross. We overlooked that sometime. The last few seconds of his life, that thief, who I don't believe ever knew Jesus before then, but he's with him all day. He sees him on the cross. He saw something special in our Lord's heart, and he turns to him and he says, remember me today in your kingdom. And what did Jesus say to him? He said, wait a second. You know, you two guys are guilty. I'm innocent. You got to pay the price. No, I believe he looked in that thief's heart, saw something there, and said, today you'll be with me in paradise. That's all it takes, people. So it might be a deathbed experience, God's time, God's place, God's purpose, But God honors prayer. And I want to tell you this, people. In that life, unfortunately, one of the evils of that life is you're in trouble, you don't really know it. Your best friend walks you into a room, you don't walk out again. Well, I had that experience one night. And I'll be honest with you I had to walk 30 yards from the car in Brooklyn to this house that I was going into, a basement apartment, and I thought I was in trouble. That was either the longest or the shortest walk of my life. I remember my knees were weak, my heart was thumping out of my chest, and I remember that night. And I don't even know why I didn't run away. It was so much a product of the life, I just went. And uh, i tell you what, I was praying. I wasn't a religious guy at all, but I was praying. You think you're going to meet your maker, you pray. So that seed you're planting in the heart of your loved one, when it comes time, believe me, he won't forget. And we have a loving God, okay, who will remember that. So keep praying. And uh, the bottom line, okay, seven months ago in a jail cell in New York, my dad at the age of 95 accepted Christ. Hey, so... (laughs) Big victory. So dad goes away. Joe Colombo at that point in time was the boss of my family. He kind of took me under his wing. I started to meet a lot of my dad's friends. I was saying, Mike, what are you doing going to school? Don't you realize your old man is? If you don't get on the street and help him out, he's going to die in prison. And people, I want to tell you this. My dad did a lot of bad things in his life, no doubt. So did I. And I pled guilty to a crime I was guilty of, did my eight years in prison. But that particular crime that he was convicted of, okay, he was innocent of. My dad was not a bank robber. I'll take that to my grave. I investigated that case thoroughly, spoke to every witness. They recanted their testimony. We gave them lie detector tests, okay? We couldn't reverse the conviction, you know? But what does it show, people? You put your hand in a fire long enough, you're going to get burnt. The system is not perfect, and we have to understand that nothing is perfect, okay? You become a target, you get what's coming to you, And that's how I look at it. And that's why I don't have any bitterness at times. I used to be bitter with the law. I don't anymore because I realize you play the game, you get caught sometimes. And nobody's going to feel sorry for my dad. I do because my father, I love him. Okay, but I was very motivated by that. I go to see my dad in prison. Dad, I'm not going to school anymore. If I don't help you out, you're going to die in here. Now, he was upset. He didn't want that for me. And we really argued about it in the visiting room. No, son, stay straight. You're going to be the only professional in the family. I said, sorry, dad. It's not going to go that way. I was pretty headstrong as a kid. And I'll never forget, he kind of threw up his hands and he said, Okay, son, but if you're going to be on the street, I want you on the street the right way. In his mind, the right way was to become a member of his life. He said, Go home. Somebody's going to be in touch with you. Do whatever you're told. That was it. He didn't give me any instruction. He didn't tell me what was going to be required of me and say anything. He said, Go home and do what you're told. And I didn't question him. I said, well, wait a second. You know, you got a little bit different life here. I mean, you never sat down and told me anything. What do I have to do? What's going to be required of me? Nothing. Go home and do what you're told. And for me, blind faith. Hey, Pop, whatever you want me to do, I love you that much. I'm ready to do it. I had blind faith in what my father told me to do. Now, how many times did you hear that Christians are supposed to have blind faith? Don't ever challenge God. He'll get upset with you. Don't ever ask him to prove anything. He'll get upset with you. Well, I'll tell you something. When you finally do come to the Lord and you have this relationship with Jesus, and people, if I wasn't giving my testimony, I'd talk the rest of the morning about a relationship with Jesus. Because for me and for all of us, really, that's what life's all about. It's about relationships. Okay, not religion, relationships. And the relationship you develop with Jesus is the most important relationship you'll develop in your life. But when you finally do that, you're going to look back on your life. And many of you have done this already. And you say, you know what, God, now I get it. Now I know why you put this person in my life. Now I know why you allowed me to have this great joy, why you allowed me, not caused me, but allowed me to go through this great struggle. You're using all of these things, Lord, to prepare me for what my purpose is now. And I realized that. Everything that came in my life, I realized God is using it, the experiences and so on and so forth, okay, as a preparation for what my purpose is now. And this moment was very significant for me. Because why? Why? Because when I finally came to Christ, I said, well, God, hold on a minute. Wait a second. I love my father more than anything. I idolize this guy. I followed him blindly, and look where it got me. And it got me in a real bad place. I'll get to that. And take it a step further in my life. I took a blood oath. I surrendered my life to La Cosa Nostra. And people, make no mistake, when you come into that life, you've got to give it all up. Mind, body, and soul, it consumes you. You've got to become that mob guy or you don't survive. I said, I did this twice in my life, Lord, and both times it worked out bad. I said, I can't do this a third time. I can't accept the fact blindly that this Bible is the blueprint for my life. Remember that. Written by men but inspired by God. This is the blueprint. Everything in that Bible is supposed to instruct us as to how we're supposed to live. And you take it a step further. As a Christian, we believe that Jesus Christ is the only way to get to heaven. No gray area. I love that. It's black and white. That's it. Well, God, if you're, accept- you're telling me to, ex- to uh, accept that, you're asking a lot of me. You put me on this earth. You gave me a free will. I can accept any one of a hundred faiths, or I don't have to accept any faith at all, and you're telling me that this is the only way? Well, wait a minute, God. You've got to prove it to me. I want to see the evidence. Now, people, you've got to understand, I think in terms of evidence. Evidence has been a very important part of my life. I've been to trial five times. I've been to more grand juries than there are people out in the hallway out there. I know every standard of proof that exists in our criminal justice system. Evidence has been a major, major part of my life. Parole hearings, prison, it's all been there. Not by choice, but by necessity. It's how I lived. You're not selling me the Brooklyn Bridge. I have to see something, and i got to believe it. And I want to tell you this. When I finally opened up this heart and my stubborn mind, and I said, God, show me. I found out that there is more evidence, people, not conjecture, not hyperbole, not some pastor trying to shove something down my throat because you can't do that with me. I found out there is more rock-solid evidence to prove that the Bible is truly God's Word and that Jesus is my risen Savior because I'm not putting my faith in anybody that's dead and buried in a tomb. I realized long ago dead people don't help you. There's more evidence to prove that than there is anything else that exists in the world. And if you allow yourself to to, to open your mind and allow God to challenge him. He doesn't say, oh, how dare you challenge me. He said, okay, my son, my daughter, now you're ready to listen. If you're ready to listen, I'm ready to show you. And people say to me all the time, you know, um, well, Mike, you know you got to have faith. Well, of course you got to have faith. But, you know, we look at faith as some alien, otherworldly thing. Do you realize how much faith you have in your normal, everyday life? Let me ask you this. How much faith do you have every time you get into an airplane? Think about it. You got absolutely no control of your life when you step into that plane and sit down there. No control whatsoever. You have faith, but what is your faith based upon? Pretty good evidence. The fact that the mechanical deal is working right, the pilot knows what he's doing, the FAA, government agency, but hopefully they get it right, (laughs) has it all right, right? Okay? Your faith is based upon evidence. Well, it's the same thing with your faith in God. Faith in God. And people sometimes say, well, Mike, you're imposing that on me. No, I'm not. I'm sharing with you because that's what I believe. And I say to people all the time, let me ask you a question. Yeah, I believe that Jesus is my Savior. Let me ask you this. I'm sharing that with you. If you were in a burning building and there was five exits out, and I knew that only one of them was the right exit out, would you like me to say to you, hey, take your pick, get lucky? No. You want me to tell you the right way? Well, this is what I believe. You can accept it or reject it. And that's why I feel strongly about sharing it because that's what I'm obligated to do. That's what our Lord told us. So that's the deal. So it's not based upon blind faith. It's based on you guys out there. I do men's groups all the time. And you say, oh, come on, Mike, you got to show me. And then you don't want to look like anything else in life. You got to do the work, man. But once you do, you'll see the difference and it will make a difference in your life. So I leave there that day. About two weeks later, a captain and a family picked me up, took me to see the boss. Now Joe Colombo had been shot and seriously wounded, as some of you know. He eventually died from the wounds. A new boss took over. His name was Tom DeBella. Tom has passed on now. I sat with Tom. He said, Mike, I got a message from your father. He said, you want to become a member of our life? Is that true? I said, yes. He said, well, here's the deal. From now on, 24 hours a day, seven days a week, you're on call to serve this family. And that means if your mother is sick and she's dying and you're at her deathbed and we call you to service, you leave your mother's side and you come and serve us. From now on, we're number one in your life before anything and everything. When and if we feel you deserve the privilege, the honor to become a member will let you know. People, a mom is not a business. It's a way of life. It's a whole subculture from everything else that exists. We got our own rules, our own policies, our own morality. We affect everybody around us, family, friends, people we do business with. That's just the way it is. And you got to be in it all the way or you don't really survive properly. So, I leave that at there. I was 21 years old. I was in kind of like a pledge period where I had to do anything and everything I was told to do to prove myself worthy. Could have been something very menial, a lot of rules in that life, a lot of alleged respect, a lot of authority. You had a meeting at 8 o'clock. You weren't there at 7.30. You were late. You were in trouble. Okay? Take the boss to a meeting, drive him, sit in the car for five hours. God forbid you walk out to go to the restroom before he comes out. You're in trouble. Hey, what if we were in trouble and they were shooting at us and you're not here? You know, the whole thing. I made that mistake. That's why I can bring it out. But anyway, okay? <laughs> and I want to be really honest with you because you've got to understand where God has brought me in my life. That life at times is very violent. And if you're part of the life, you're part of the violence, and there's no escape. And if anybody tells you differently, they either weren't a made member of that life, or they're not being honest with you, and I think you know what I mean. And I say that to encourage you, because I know as I sit here, there's a lot of people struggling in their life with things that they've done, things that they're involved in, and things that they can't be, think they can't be forgiven. And if you get anything out of this when you walk out of here, hopefully you'll be encouraged by that. So, after about a year, I guess i proved myself worthy. It was Halloween night, 1975. My anniversary's coming up. <clears throat> and that night, myself and five other gentlemen were called into a room, and we all took an oath and became sworn, made members of the Colombo crime family. Now, I took that oath very seriously back then, people. I take it seriously today, even though I don't consider myself a member of the life anymore. You come into the life, you don't sign a contract. There's no retirement age, you know the deal. You can't say, hey, I quit. They say when you leave that life, you either leave in a coffin or you join the government and enter a witness protection program. Obviously, I've done neither. It was a very solemn ceremony, meant to be very imposing, dimly lit room late at night. Six of us walked into the room individually. The boss was seated at the head of like a horseshoe configuration, the underboss and the consigliere to his left and right, and all the captains were alongside of them. I walked down the aisle, stood in front of the boss, held out my hand. He took a knife, cut my finger, some blood dropped on the floor. This is a blood oath. I cupped my hands. He took a picture of a saint, Catholic altar card, put it in my hands and lit it aflame. Didn't hurt it burned quickly. It was merely symbolic. And he said something to me that night that I don't recall ever hearing in my life before. And I grew up as a Catholic. Catholic school from kindergarten right through high school. I was an altar boy the whole bit. But for some reason for me, Catholicism was like a subject in school. I didn't get that this whole deal was about a relationship with Jesus. You know, and I'm not blaming Catholics. Don't please if You don't get insulted. It just didn't work for me back then. And when he said this, it was the first night that I recall hearing this in my life. He said, tonight, Michael Francis, you are being born again into a new life, into La Cosa Nostra. Violate what you know about this life. Betray your brothers, and you will die, and you'll burn in hell like the saint is burning in your hands. He said, do you accept? And I said, yes, I do. People, the first time I was born again, I was born into sin. Knowingly, willingly, this was the road that I was on. You know, sometimes the enemy, the devil, does mock the Lord and tries to duplicate what we call a very sacred and meaningful service, to be born again into our Lord. So how far away from God's grace can you be and to be where I was? Now, the other five guys went in the room. They all accepted the oath. You come into the life, you come in as a soldier. I was motivated to do two things. I wanted to get my dad out of prison, told you about that, and I wanted to make money. My dad says in this life, you make money, it translates to power, not unlike the real world. You saw the DVD, no need to get into it. That's not important. I was fortunate. I knew how to use that life to benefit me in business, went on to make a lot of money. 1980, the boss of my family, Carmine Persigo, was now doing life in prison without parole. Came to me and he said, Mike, you're doing a good job. I'm going to make you a cop regime, a captain. And uh, from 1980 until about 94, 95, when I really consider myself removed from that life, I operated in that capacity. And I want to tell you where I was in 1984 when I think God started to change my direction, unbeknownst to me. 1984. I'm a captain in the family. My dad was hoping he was grooming me to one day be the boss. There was kind of two factions in that family, Francis and Persico. And my dad was kind of grooming me to be the boss. Junior had a son, Alley Boy, who was now doing life. He came in at the same time, and maybe we were going to take over the family. That's what they hoped anyway, at least my dad, right? I became a major target of law enforcement. I was indicted five times. I went to trial five times. I beat every case. I beat Giuliani in 1984, a major racketeering guy, me and Jimmy Rotunda. With two guys, the two major guys that he indicted on a big RICO case, we had 15 co-defendants. I'll never forget the day of my arraignment. We're in the courtroom, and Rudy passes by my table. He says, Francis, if I convict you on this, you're going to get double what your father got. I'm giving you 100 years. That's the kind of time they were giving the mob guys back then. I'll never forget. I looked at Rudy. I said, hey, Rudy, bring it on. Beat you guys four times already. Let's go for round five dumb thing to do, people. You don't ever antagonize law enforcement anymore. They don't need any more incentive to come after you. But I was young and arrogant and dumb and didn't like the police back then. But fortunately, after a uh, almost seven-month trial, uh, uh, the whole experience, um, I was acquitted in that case. Some of our co-defendants were convicted. They got 30 years. I lose that case. I'm not here today. I'd have gotten at least 50. So I beat that case. I'll be honest with you, I'm doing pretty well in business. I'm bringing in 8 to $10 million a week into my operation. I got my own jet plane, Lear 25A, I got my own helicopter, Bell helicopter. I got a house in Florida, a house in Marina, Del Rey, California, a house in New York. I got 300 crazy guys under me, I organized all the Russians in Brighton Beach, we were in the gas business together, and for those of you that are driving your cars back then, I brought the price of gas down back then, so you would have loved us. <laughs> I don't want to get into all of that, because that's a whole other deal. Sorry, God. But anyway. uh, Anyway, um, so I'm doing pretty good, right? Top of the world, Mom. 31 years old. I got all this kind of money. Maybe be the boss of a major family. Okay? Top of the world. I got it going on, right? Invincible. Among many things I was doing back then, I was making movies. I had a production company out in in L.A. We were knocking out these movies. And Smokey Robinson and Leon Kennedy, two friends of mine, Smokey came to me with a screenplay for a breakdance movie. He said, hey, Mike, I got the screenplay, a lot of music, a lot of dance. He wrote some of the songs for it. He said, Will you produce this movie? And I said, Yeah, Smoke, I got a lot of gas money. Let's put it in a business, right? <laughs> the, no, I didn't tell him that. Smokey's cool. But anyway, uh, I said, Yeah, Smokey, if we can make it in Florida, I'll do it there. I have a house down there. I like the warm weather. Let's do it. And you know, it was, it was when breakdancing was hot. A lot of music, a lot of dance, a lot of rap music. But that's when you can listen to rap music on a radio. Not like today. Forget about this stuff today. But back then it was cool. We had the Sugar Hill gang, you know, fat. Uh, the Fat Boys, Run DMC, Curtis Blow, they were cool. I said, okay, so we're going to do this in Florida. And I bring in um, cast and crew from L.A. to work in the film, 50 professional dancers to dance in the film. I got everybody staying in a hotel in South Florida, the Marina Bay Club. And I remember we were in uh, pre-production. We had rap pre-production. We were getting ready to film. And one day, we're all chilling. We're sitting by the pool. It was a nice day, a beautiful day in Florida. I had a few guys from Brooklyn shooting a breeze. I got a drink on my hand, I'll never forget. Guys, you'll appreciate this. You young guys, if you don't, you will one day. Trust me. Okay, I'm sitting by the pool, and all of a sudden, out of the water, comes this gorgeous 20 year old girl. I see her. Everything went in slow motion. It was like a Pepsi commercial, right? I see her. You know that movie you had me at, Hello? She had me at the first shake of her head. The water's coming off. I'm blown away. I said, Man, who is this girl? And she looked like a dancer. She had kind of a dancer's body. So the choreographer was sitting next to me. He said, hey, Jeff, is that one of your girls? He said, yeah. I said, what's her name? He said, Camille. I said, bring her over. I want to meet her. Big shot producer. She'll want to meet me. Why not, right? So she comes over. Her name is Camille. I introduced myself to her. I said, Camille, my name is Michael. I'm your producer. I said, I want to get to know you better. Let me take you to lunch one day. Sure, sweet, polite, the, <clears throat> excuse me, the smile got me. So we set a time and a place. I got one of these uh, restaurants set up on top of one of the major hotels in, in uh, Miami. I figured, no problem, you know, I sweep her off her feet. I had everything going but the violins that day, right? I'm up there 15 minutes, 20 minutes. 45 minutes later, she stood me up. Stood up a mob guy, imagine that? But she didn't she know who I was, trust me. She would have never came. But anyway, so I see her the next day on a set. I said, hey, what happened? You know, I had a date, you didn't show up. She doesn't say a word. I never forget. She just smiles at me and, you know, I I say something. You know, I got to make myself feel better. I said, well, were you rehearsing, you know? Give me something, you know? Yeah, I was rehearsing. I said, all right, let's try it again. No problem. We said another time in a place, stood me up again. Now, she did this to me five times, okay? Now, if she was sitting here, she would look up, roll her eyes and say, would you stop exaggerating? It wasn't five times. I said, excuse me. I was the offended party. I wasn't used to rejection. We know when we're rejected. It was five times. Trust me. I want this girl. She don't want have anything to do with me. One night, we're coming out of a cast meeting. It's 9.30 at night. I see her because I always have my eye on her now. And she's with some of her friends, and she's upset. Something's wrong. I said, oh, this is it. Tell made for me. Whatever I got to do. I got to hurt somebody, fire somebody. I'm in, right? <laughs> so I go and see her. I said, come here. What's up? You know, what's wrong? She finally opens up, starts to talk to me a little bit. She tells me, you know what? My mom and dad are upset. They want me to come home. I've never been this far away from home before for this long. She said, there's some things happening on this movie set I don't really agree with. And I'm saying to myself, what are you talking about? You know, those sets can get kind of wild. Music, dancing, young kids. I mean, they get a little crazy. But I'm saying, when well, you're a dancer, to myself, I said, what's the big deal? But then I'm starting to think. We used to go to some of the after-hour clubs in Miami and Lauderdale. She would never show up. You know, kept to herself, one or two friends, rehearsed back to the room. So I asked her, I said, well, you know, what's, what's the problem with that? And she says, well, you know, I'm a, I'm a person of faith, a believer, a Christian. I don't know how she put it, right? I said, well, I'm a Catholic. We got something in common. Let's talk, right? You know? <laughs> and you need to get to know her better. I got to cut to the chase and get to the end of this. Um, I fell very much in love with this young woman. She's now my wife of 28 years. And there's uh thank you. Thank you. There's no doubt, people, that she was the catalyst that God used to lead me to the Lord. And the reason I say that is somebody can lead you to the Lord. Nobody can make you accept him. That's very personal. It's between you and God. So she tells me we start to get to know each other a little bit. She starts to like me. And, uh, you know, she says, "Um, you got to come home and meet my mother. I said, hey, no problem. I do good with moms. Let's go, right? So we wrap the movie. We get on a plane. We go meet her mom. Her mom, Irma, was the most godly woman I ever met in my life. You meet Irma for two minutes, your name goes into her prayer book. She had a prayer book like a telephone book. I'm not kidding. And the entries in the book, because we read it. Okay, the guy I saw on the corner with one shoe, the delivery board that came to the house. She didn't have to know your name. If she saw you, she thought you needed prayer, she was praying for you every day. Believe strongly. I'll tell you what, people. I believe that woman prayed me to where I am now. That's why I believe in the power of prayer, because of her. Amen. So now... I'm starting to know her better. I'm starting to see Camille. And, you know, they never hit me over the head with the Bible, never preached to me. And My wife, she's 20 years old, right? She was a normal girl, but there was something special about her. And that thing was that she really believed in Jesus. She respected him. And her mom, the same thing. As a matter of fact, sometimes they talk to me like Jesus was standing next to her. It was kind of spooky to me at times. They say, I don't know if I belong in this room. But here's what's happening. I'm starting to fall in love with this girl. And I'm starting to see that, you know what? Jesus is really important in their lives. They really mean this. My life is a direct contradiction to everything that they believe. How is this going to work? Because I wanted her in my life. Now, I'll be honest with you. I wasn't buying into it. I was Catholic. I wasn't religious. I wasn't going to accept it. I'm a mob guy. But I respected what they believed. And I'm saying something's not going to work here. Now, the reason I told you where I was, because I want you to understand this, when I meet her, I'm at the top of my game. I'm mob guy all the way. This is who I was. This is where I grew up. I love my father. I was a good soldier. This is who I was. It was never on my radar screen ever to walk away from that life, people. Never. But here's what's happening. All of a sudden, my love for this young woman is becoming stronger than this lifelong bond and adoration I had for my dad, stronger than this blood oath that I took to La Cosa Nostra. Now, how do you explain that? She wasn't the first beautiful woman I ever met in my life, but there was something about her. And there's no question, if you see how my my life evolved now, that something was God. And I tell her all the time, you were a plant. The FBI couldn't do it, you did it. You were a plant, no doubt about it, okay? And here's the deal. I start to fall in love with her. All of a sudden, so. I got a plan. I got to move away from this life. And I was into the life, so I knew what was going on. Guys were going to jail. I said, ah, here's my exit strategy. I always had a plan for everything, right? I said, I got a hold of my lawyer, John Jacobs. He's passed on now. I said, hey, John, I'm going to take a plea. They were indicting me again in the Eastern District of New York on this whole gas, whole racketeering thing. I said, I'm going to take a plea. I'll give him some money. I'll do some time. I'll marry Camille. When I move out to the West Coast, I'll get out of jail. I wasn't afraid of jail. I knew, you know, this was part of the life. I said, I'll have parole and probation. I can use that as an excuse. The guys in New York know I can't be in touch with them. Maybe after 10 or 12 years, they'll forget about me. That was my plan. People that had nothing to do with God. That was my plan. It wasn't God's plan. He wasn't going to allow me to backdoor this, but that was my plan. So you know what happens in our life sometimes? Think about it. Sometimes we're walking parallel to God. We don't know it. What do I mean by that? I eventually married Camille. I married her in July. I went off to prison in, in December. I married Camille, but I married her for me. I didn't marry her for God. I didn't care if she was Buddhist, Islam. It didn't matter. I respected her beliefs. But I married her because I was in love with her, and I was used to taking what I wanted. Okay? So I married Camille. I left the life. But I didn't leave the life for any noble reason. I didn't leave the life because I was a good guy and they were bad. I was one of them. Okay? I left the life because it suited me at that time. I did it for my purpose. And I believe at that point in time, I'm walking along, and God is up there saying, hey, hey. Good move. You married this Christian girl. I put her there. You don't get it yet. You will one day. Okay? Hey, you left a life. Great. Can't do anything with you when you're running around the streets of New York committing crimes. You're walking alongside me, my son, my daughter. But one day you're going to realize we're going to intersect and you're going to understand this was my plan, not yours. How many of you are walking parallel to God? Many of you, if you don't get it yet, he's got your attention. Who dragged you into this church today? What are you going through at this point in time in your life that maybe God's trying to get your attention? Not maybe, excuse me. He's always trying to get your attention. When are you going to listen? You're going to wait until the the axe falls on you because if that's what He's got to do, it'll happen. Or you're going to do it the easy way starting today. It's up to you. Just asking the question. So, Mary Camille, I want to tell you something, too, people. I'm not the story here, my wife's the story. I brought so much baggage into this young girl's life. And you want to know how the left field God hit us? And you'll know this. My wife's Mexican, Mexican-American, but Mexican. Back in New York in 85, we didn't have Mexican. I never even ate a burrito before I met my wife. I didn't know anything about her, okay? And I'm Italian. My wife never met an Italian guy. She saw The Godfather once. That was it. That's how I had of left field God hit us, okay? But I brought so much baggage into this girl's life, and she will tell you, I love my husband, but if God wasn't in the foundation of our marriage, I wouldn't have made it too tough. Five rough years in prison, rough on her, rough on both of us, but really rough on her. 13 horrible months on parole. I walk out the door. She was afraid I wasn't coming in. The feds told her I was going to get killed. There was people out to hurt me. I couldn't put a house in my name. No utilities, nothing. We were literally dodging bullets. I had to come. Remember, one weekend we had to go away, go down to Palm Springs because they said people were here to hurt me. I don't know if they were or not, but this is what they said. Like an idiot, I violate my parole, go back to jail for three years. I thought I was going to lose her then. She'll tell you, only God handled this. Believe me, because she always focused in on God instead of running away. And I thank him for that because I love this girl very much. And he's kept her in my life. So, 10-year prison sentence, $15 million restitution, $5 million in forfeitures, gave up the plane, the helicopter, the whole bit, Married Camille, go off to prison. I'm in there a couple of years. Life magazine writes this big story. Me, I think I'm really sharp. I sit down talk to the reporter, figuring I'm going to make things nice, you know. He asked me, oh, what are you doing out here? I said, oh, you know what I mean? I married this Mexican girl. I'm out in California. I like the warm weather. What about your life in a mob? Said, what mob? There is no mob. There's no mafia. What are you talking about? I tell him standard mob stuff, right? I leave the, the, the place. Two weeks later, the warden calls me in the office. He says, Francis, I thought you were a smart guy. I said, why? What happened? He said, do you have a death wish? I said, what are you talking about? And he shows me the article in Life Magazine. Bad article. I don't know how many pages it was. I don't remember, but big color opening like that, big picture of me smiling across the top, quitting the mafia. I said, oh, my Lord. I started reading this article. It's like he had me testifying against everybody in New York. He said, hey, you're in trouble. Feds are in here. You know, you're in trouble. we got to lock you down. They locked me down. Long story short, (coughs) you know, I have all this stuff with the feds. And I'll be honest with you people. I tried to walk a line, try to keep the government happy, try not to hurt anybody. It was a tough line that I tried to walk, and eventually it caught up with me. All right? I didn't want to hurt anybody back here. It wasn't in me to cooperate. I didn't want to put people out of the way. I just wanted to get out of the life, so I'm trying to dance through the the feds on this side, the other guys. It turned out bad. I get out of prison. I'm on parole for 13 months, the worst time in our life. Big shot mob guy made all this money on the street. I was like a fish out of water in L.A. That's a tough place for guys like us, trust me. I couldn't put a house in my name, no utilities, I couldn't get anything going financially. It was tough. The feds were on top of me all the time, cooperating, tried to bring me here to Newark to testify in John Riggie's case. I refused. They sent me back. Three weeks later, I was was violated on my parole. One day I tell my wife, honey, I'm going to the bank. When I come back, I'll buy you lunch. I go to the bank. I walk outside. Fifteen agents. They put the cuffs on me, throw me in a paddy wagon, took my car, went into the bank, leaned my bank accounts. Okay, went to my house with a search warrant, cleaned us out, took the money out of my wife's purse. Told her, this is your, ma- your husband's money, it's racketeering money, you don't work, it's his. She had nothing. Cleaned her out. They're driving me down to the lockup in MDC, and as they're driving me down there, they tell me, Francis, we're done with you, okay? You're going to spend the rest of your life in prison. We're indicting you on a nuke charge. We violated you on the parole. We cleaned you out. You're done. They bring me to MDC in L.A., and they put me in that 6 by 8 cell. They were going to transport me back to Brooklyn in the morning and here's my situation. I said, I'm done. It's over. Took all my money. Another racketeering cases. People, fortunately, you may not have an experience. You don't beat a racketeering case with money. It's so tough. Without money, you're not doing it with a public defender. I said, my wife, she waited for me five years, 13 months on parole. Now we got two kids that cleaned her out. How's she going to wait for me now? The girl I did all of this for, I love her. I'm going to lose her. I said I even started seeing her in the eyes of a, in the arms of another man. Italians are crazy that way, right? I said, man, I wish I never met her that night because every time I saw a vision of her, it was too painful. I said, I'm going to spend the rest of my life in this 6 by 8 They can't put me on a yard. I got nothing but enemies, dead threats all over me. I'm done. It's over. People, I want to tell you this. I have experienced and felt every emotion in life that you could feel from ecstasy right down to grief and everything in between. I've led a pretty full life, but by far the worst emotion you could ever experience is hopelessness. When you feel, it's over. Everything that's dear to you is gone. Everything you've loved is taken away. You're in this deep, dark hole. There's nothing you can do to drag yourself out of it. It is the worst feeling in the world. I can tell you this. My heart hurt so much that night. It was a physical pain. It was pounding out of my chest. My head was killing me. I couldn't endure it. You can call me weak. Call me whatever you want. That's how I felt that night. I was scared, and I was devastated, and I was angry at God. Why? Because I had accepted Christ. My mother-in-law, my wife, accept Christ. He'll forgive your sins. Hey, I want some of that. I'm a sinner. What do I have to do? Get on my knees, say a prayer. Really try to feel it. Did I really mean it? I don't know. I really don't. But yeah, I wanted to be forgiven. But I remember my mother-in-law. You got to surrender to Jesus. Wait a second, Ma. What do you mean surrender? I'm a mob guy you know, in my heart. I said, I grew up, God helps those who help themselves. I'll surrender to the court to get a better sentence, but I ain't surrendered anywhere else. Don't make sense to me. I couldn't process that part of it. But you know what, people? Your acceptance of Christ, I believe, is made whole in your surrender to him because that's when he can work through you. That's when you realize he's in charge, not me. But I couldn't get that, so I was angry with him. I'm laying on that cot, and I'll be honest with you, I just wanted to close my eyes and not wake up. And people, I'll say this, and I'm ashamed to say this. I used to look down on people that committed suicide. They're weak. That's how I thought. I don't feel that way anymore. I know how you can be so devastated that you just don't even want to live anymore. Now, I wasn't suicidal that night, but I wish I could just close my eyes and not wake up. That's how painful it was. A prison guard walked by my cell. Francis, you okay? You don't look good. I said, get away from me. I don't feel good. Leave me alone. I don't need to see any of you guys tonight. I want to be left alone. He left. Came back a minute later. Had this book. Pushes it through the slot on the door because I'm in a hole. I, it falls on the floor. I hear a thump. And I'm kind of groggy. I'm looking down. Where did this guy put in my cell? I saw it was a Bible. And I got mad. I said, I don't want a Bible. I don't want to read about God. I want a bottle of Prozac or something. You want to really help me out? Right? <laughs> And I'm looking down at that Bible. I'm not dramatizing this. And I'm getting so angry with God. It took me maybe 30 seconds, a minute. I jump off the cot, pick up the Bible. I slammed it against that cinder block wall as hard as I could. It's like everything came out of me. It took me about 30 seconds. I said, you know what? I don't need another enemy. It's only me and God in this cell. I believed in him. And I picked up the book and I said, you know what? I don't remember to that point in my life ever crying out to anybody. Maybe my mother when I was a kid. But I picked up the book and I said, God, if you're here tonight, you need to help me because I can't deal with this. you got to give me something to make me feel better. And I meant it. And I'm standing there, people, and I open a book, okay? Now, I'd never really read the Bible before. Catholic school, if you know, catechism, not really the Bible. A priest reads the Bible from the pulpit on a Sunday. You don't really get into your Bible. It's catechism. And up to that point in my life, I want to confess this to you. I've never heard God speak to me audibly. I've never seen him speak to me in a dream. Until today, I don't have that gift. Some people do. I believe in that. I don't have that gift. But he talks to me, to my heart all the time now because I have a relationship with him. And he talks through this book and in other ways. So I open up the book, and it opens up to the book of Proverbs. Now, I wasn't searching. It just opened up that way. Now, was that a coincidence? No. I told you I'm analytical. Things have to make sense to me to catch my attention. And I'm opening it up, and as I'm reading, I'm saying, wow, what a brilliant book this is. It appeals to anybody. I don't care what faith you are. It's a brilliant book. And as I'm reading it, I'm saying, wow, this really is something. You know when God said to Solomon in the book of Kings, nobody before you will ever be as wise and nobody after you will ever be as wise as a reward for what he didn't ask for, with the exception of Jesus, had a little advantage, he was God, nobody was as wise as Solomon. And I'm reading it, and I'm reading and I'm reading and all of a sudden a verse comes to me and just stops me cold. Stops me cold. And God spoke to me through this verse. Proverbs 16, 7 says, When a man's ways are pleasing to the Lord, even his enemies are at peace with him. Now, why did that stop me cold? You knew my situation. It's almost like God was standing in front of me and said, Hey, Francis, big tough guy, you're laying on that cot and you're blaming me for everything. You blame me. Oh, you married the girl. What a great thing you did. Well, who'd you marry the girl for? Did you marry her for me or did you marry her for you? married her for me. I married her for God. Oh, you left the life. What a noble thing you did there. Well, who'd you do that for? Did you do it for me or did you do it for you? You don't lie to yourself when you're in that situation, people. I did it for me. And then it was like he said, well, maybe if you'd done it for me, I'll take care of all your enemies because I had nothing but enemies. And it just clicked in me for that reason, for some reason. You know, God speaks to us in different ways according to our needs in different verses in the Bible. You could read the same verse, and it could speak to you in 10 different ways according to your need. And that's what I needed to hear that night. It motivated me to read on a little more. And I read on and read on, and I came to a verse that's become the verse of my life, people. And you know what? It should be the verse of every one of your lives. Everything should start here. Now, I don't want to tell you what to do, but as a former mob guy, I'm going to tell you what to do. Okay? (laughs) You read this verse. You know, I'm going to sign books for some of you. I've signed thousands of books in my life. We signed books this morning. You know, I sign anything. But I'll tell you the truth. It used to be shameful for me to sign a book. I didn't feel right signing it. I said, you know, what the heck's a big deal? You know, my, my signature don't add a bit of value to the book. Just my name on a piece of paper. And then God put it in my heart to put this verse underneath my signature every time. And now I like doing that because I want to bring your attention to it. It all starts here. Proverbs chapter 3, verses 5 and 6. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not on your own understanding in all of your ways, everything you do, acknowledge him, and he will, not he can or might, he will make your path straight. Now you know the story. Why did that verse impact me in such a way that night? Because that's what I needed to hear. I was desperate. And that's the night I challenged God. Said, wait a second, God trusted my dad, took a blood oath, look where I am. You got to show me now, Lord. Show me, I'm ready. And from that point on, I'll tell you what happened. The racketeering case fell apart, never indicted me. I did get four years on a parole violation. I spent 35 months and 13 more days in prison, 29 months and seven days in that hole, 24-7, me and God. And it was during that time that I built my faith. I did my search. I'm very into apologetics, people. I read everything about my faith. I want to be able to defend it, and I've read about every other faith. I read my Bible inside out and upside down. If you see my prison Bible, there's more of my notes on there than there is Scripture. I read it 100 times. I don't quote verses. I'm not that bright. I don't have a photogenic memory, but I know my Bible. I'm a New Testament guy. I love it. I'll be honest with you, but I know my Bible. I read over 400 books. I had my wife send me in every book that you can imagine on all different faiths, and I studied, and I read I had a Sony Walkman every day. I'd listen to Pastor Greg Laurie and all these wonderful evangelists that have such a gift in interpreting Scripture. And remember, that's what it's about, people. We don't go off on our own. It's interpreting Scripture. And I came out of there believing. I really did. And I want to tell you this. Did I hate being in there? Of course I did. But I realize now that God saved my life in those three years because he said to me, Son, you're too much a product of that life. You don't understand how it takes you over. He said, if you were on the street, you're never going to accept me. You're never going to believe in me. You're never going to realize that it's about me and not you because you're a control guy. And i got to break you of this. I'm sorry you got to go through it. And for those of you that are struggling now, God might be saying the same thing to you. I'm sorry, my son, my daughter, but i got to get your attention. This might be the only way. That's why I say make it easy on yourself because he's going to get you. I remember one passage in the Bible when they said to Jesus, what is your, your mission here on earth? And you know what he said? He said, not to lose one soul for the father. That means once you know him, he ain't losing you. So get ready. He's coming. He's there. And make it easy on yourself. I get out of prison after three years. I had no idea what I was going to do. Everybody was predicting my death. A speaker? Come on, people. The pastor of my church, a good old boy from Tennessee who married me and Camille. I hardly knew him, but she wanted to get married in a Christian church. I said, hey, wherever. Just get married. Okay? Dr. Myron Taylor. I love this man. A good old boy from Tennessee. He was sending me money and books when I was in prison. I used to tell my wife, why is this guy sending me money? I don't know him. She said, quiet. He loves the Lord, and in turn, he loves you. Just take the money and the books. Okay. The boss, these Latin women, forget about it, right? So uh, I get out. He says, Mike, you've got a great story. He said, I want you to give your testimony in front of the congregation. Testimony? I didn't even know what he was talking about. I thought you did that from a witness stand. I didn't know what he was talking about. <laughs> Cut to the chase, people. If I tell you how this came along, I don't claim credit for this ministry. I ran the other way. This is not what I wanted. I started to do other things, but I started to say, Lord, guide me, because I don't know what the heck I'm doing. Everybody's predicting my death. I don't know how I'm going to start a li- I don't know what I'm going to do, and he just pulled me along. That's another whole story. I'm not going to bore you with that, but I've written four books. I'm on my fifth. I never wrote anything in my life. They're doing a movie about my life based upon my autobiography, Blood Covenant. They've been trying to make a movie on me for 20 years. I always said no. They want to make another Goodfellas, another Donnie Brasco. I didn't want to do that. But they've come to me now, and believe me, faith-based movies are meaning something. And I'll tell you this. Okay, I wrote the script. I got a group of people behind me. The movie starts production in February, and it's a mob story, guys. Okay, I don't sugarcoat anything. You know why? Because I'm all about outreach. I want people to come into the door like some of you did today that would never come in and ever think they would hear about Jesus. I don't hit anybody over the head with the Bible, but when he intersects in my life, it's going to be there, and we hope that seeds are planted, and I promise you all this. If God isn't honored in that movie, I promise you it will never hit the screen because that's what I'm all about. Everything I do has to be to further the purpose of my ministry. In January, I believe, or February, we just shot a two-hour special for the History Channel, Definitive Guide to the Mob. I've seen through the life of Michael Francis, I'm going to uh, history tomorrow. They're starting a promotion on it. They want to turn it into a series. It'll be out in January. I just filmed all this week another television show called The Sit-Down, where I negotiate disputes between people. <laughs> Not John Gotti anymore, thank God, but other people, right? <laughs> Normal people. But, but uh, that's going on. And I look at all of these opportunities to give me a platform, okay, to do what I do, because that's what life is all about for me at this point in time, okay? And I want to leave you with this. To make you understand that when God does have a plan and a purpose, he beats all the odds all the time for any one of you. When I left that life, everybody predicted my death, and I mean everybody. You read the inside cover of my book, Blood Covenant. Guys, it's a mob story. No sugarcoating. Ladies, it's a love story. A story about me and my wife and how we got together, and you know, it's a love story. I got a little <laughs> bit for everybody. And it's a story of how God can transform a life. And I got to apologize, we ran out of books, but here's the deal. We got a lot of other stuff back there, but anybody wants this book, okay, you can uh, buy it today. It'll be autographed and shipped to you at our cost, and we'll get it to you in the next two, three weeks, so you can do that today. But um, uh, read the inside cover. 1995, when I walked out, Life Magazine, quote, If he holds to what he has promised, it will mark the first time a high-ranking member of the mafia will publicly walk away from his past. Ed McDonald, head of the Organized Crime Strike Force. I remember he made a remark on national TV. Quote, Ed McDonald, I wouldn't want to be in Michael Franzese's shoes. I don't think his life expectancy is very substantial. Ed was very diplomatic. Bernie Welsh, FBI agent, okay, around at that time. He made another quote. He wasn't as diplomatic. He said, quote, Franzese will get whacked. I don't have to explain what that means over here. Okay? And my mother, I pray for my son every night. 1995. People, I told you, in 1975, when I walked into that room Halloween night, there were six of us that took the oath that night. I'm the only one alive today. Not one of those men died of natural causes. Want a little more proof that God's going to fulfill his purpose in your life? You saw the Fortune magazine article. It was written in 1987, 50 biggest and most powerful mob bosses in the country. They had a chart with the 50 of us on there. I was listed as number 18. I was the youngest guy on the list, five behind Gotti at that point in time. How they make a list like that, don't ask me. They didn't ask me for my tax returns. All nonsense, right? But I will tell you this. What is important about that? Today, 20-some-odd years later, out of that list of 50, 44 of them are dead. Three of them that I know of are doing life in prison without parole, and I'm here to talk to you about my Lord and Savior and my hero in life, Jesus Christ. Now, what does that show you? What it tells you all, people, don't be discouraged with your life because God has got a plan and a purpose for you, and nothing will stand in the way of him fulfilling that purpose in your life. Nothing. No mob, no sickness, no death, nothing other than you. You're the only one that can do it because our Lord is never an intruder. He's always an invited guest. And on that, I want to ask you, are you ready? Are you ready? People, when you live to be long enough, old enough, like I am, you get to realize, we're not guaranteed another minute in this life. And unfortunately, some of you have had that experience with people that you love. We don't know, okay? The time is now. Not next week, not tomorrow, not put it off until another day. The time is now because it is the best move you'll make in your life to know that the Lord has got your back. Powerful term on the street, powerful term in our life. So, I'm going to invite, but I'm going to be back there. I hope to see you all. And, people, I'm on Facebook, Twitter, the whole bit. Anytime you want to get me, I have a great ministry online. Love to be in touch with you, especially my homeboys back here. That's a California term, but sorry for mixing it. But anyway, um, I can say gumbadas, but you're not all Italian. So, anyway, um, I really would. But I'm going to invite Pastor Tim up here now, and he's going to address you. And uh, I bless you all. Thank you very you much. Thank you, Michael, Francis, Michael. Thank,
0: thank you, you, man. Thank, thank, you. thank you. Thank you, thank you. incredible story. Incredible story. Grateful to you. Michael's living proof that anybody can have a fresh start with God. Anybody can have a fresh start with God at any time. That's the message of hope. That's why we gather. That's our whole purpose as a church. We believe that comes through Jesus Christ. There's no arm twisting. There's just living proof that God could take a Saul, turn him into Paul. He can take a a Michael Franzese and turn a good fella into a God fella. How does that happen? It's very simple. The Bible says if we confess Our sins, he is faithful. God is faithful, he's just, and he will what? He will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. We all have stuff in our past that we're not proud of, and you may be sitting here today, don't be self-satisfied and be like, well, I'm not like a gangster, you know, I'm I'm not a mob guy, I got nothing like that. But we all have things that we're ashamed of, dark stuff, failures, addictions, divorce, whatever the thing is that we carry around, and the message of the gospel is that God wants to free you of that. He wants to set you free so that when you see him face to face, he sees the righteousness of his son, Jesus. That's what happened on the cross. The blood of Jesus forgives us of our sins, cleanses our hearts, and then he puts his Holy Spirit in us so we can live for him. Amen? That's the message, guys, and that's what I want to leave you with, particularly if it's your first time. Maybe God planted a seed today, but I want to invite you to pray. Can we all bow our heads? All our campuses with our heads bowed. Father, we just thank you so much um, that we got to hear today. We got to hear, Lord, one of the trophies of your grace, that Lord, you had Michael Franzese in mind when you created him, and you called him out of darkness into your light, and Father, he's one of the first in line at the kingdom of heaven. We're going to be surprised when we get to heaven, God, who is entering ahead of us, but we thank you for grace, because it points to the power of Jesus Christ, and I pray right now, Lord, for any man or woman who feels far from you, that they would just even invite you in this moment. That's you, you feel far from God, you can simply say to Him your own words, say, God, I want a fresh start. Jesus, come into my heart, cleanse my heart, and give me a purpose for living. Father God, I pray that your Holy Spirit will continue to minister powerfully, Lord, in this church all across New Jersey, the Northeast. We know people are cynical and skeptical of faith, but we are worshiping a risen, living Savior today. We ask all glory would go to Jesus Christ. It's in His name we pray. All God's people said,